Hi, this is Alan Chartok, and I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Dr. Thomas Patterson, the Bradley Professor of Government and the Press at the Kennedy School of Government, Harvard University. Professor Patterson is the author of several books, including Informing the News, The Need for Knowledge-Based Journalism, published in October 2013. His earlier book, The Vanishing Voter, looks at the causes and consequences of electoral participation. And his book on the media's political role, Out of Order, received the American Political Science Association's Graeber Award as the best book of the decade in political communication. His first book, The Unseeing Eye, was named by the American Association for Public Opinion Research as one of the 50 most influential books on public opinion in the past half century. He's also the author of Mass Media Elections, How Americans Choose Their President, 1980, and two general American government texts, The American Democracy and We the People. Professor Thomas Patterson joins me in conversation today about his book, Is the Republican Party Destroying Itself? The book explains five deadly traps that the GOP has set for itself We'll talk with Professor Thomas Patterson about that and much more. But first, welcome, Professor Patterson. Well, thank you, Alan. I remember, Tom, when you came to SUNY at Albany, and we thought we had a chance of grabbing you off and making you professor. And you did a really silly thing. You went and took a professorship at Harvard. Now, I, I've never quite understood how you could make that choice that way. Would you like to speak to that well, actually, it was a hard decision. I was at uh, the Maxwell School at uh, Syracuse University at the time, and uh, I, you know, I loved the Maxwell School, um, and uh, I loved the Kennedy School too. But probably the tipping point between those two was the difference between, uh, you know, a city that's on the uh, on the ocean and um, and thriving, and um, and and I and I, I loved living in Syracuse, uh, and. Uh, but it's a different kind of experience, and uh, I thought I needed kind of a change of venue, and uh, and uh, here I am, uh, about five miles from the ocean, and uh, kind of in the middle of the, the middle of the city. It's a it's a very different experience, and uh, one that I I grew up in a small town, and uh, I thought somewhere along the lines I'd like to live in a big city, and uh, that was kind of the opportunity. So it was as much. Um, that opportunity and that chance, uh, as it was kind of trading Maxwell School for the for the Kennedy School, they're both very very excellent programs. So tell me about where you grew up. I grew up in a small town in Minnesota, um, thousand twelve, uh, in by the roughly by the nineteen fifty census, if I remember, um, and now it's down to about seven fifty. It's been hollowed out by, like so many of those small towns, I still go back there nearly every summer. Um, and I walk into the VFW, which is kind of the only <clears throat> watering hole in, in town. And, uh, you know, I still know half the people in the in the place. And um, so it, in, to some way it's, ways it's still home, but it, it's changed so fundamentally. Um, you know, the farms have gotten larger, the families have gotten smaller, and uh, you know, there just is not kind of the nucleus uh, in those towns that that there once were, and it's we call it flyover country, or some people call it flyover country. And uh, you know, I think it's one of the reasons why our politics are so difficult at the moment is that there are large parts of the country, like my small hometown, that have not done well in recent decades. And then uh, you get to these coastal cities, and uh, and they're flying high, and the people in them are doing pretty well, and. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we don't have 
two Americas in a fundamental sense, but um, in many ways, when you kind of look at uh, the economics of these different areas of the country, uh, there are at least two Americas, and uh, and some places are, are kind of being left behind as others propel ahead. Professor Tom Patterson, let me ask you this. Were your parents Republicans? Well, my mother was kind of apolitical, I think. Uh, you know, my father was uh, was a Democrat. And uh, now this yeah. is a Republican town. I mean, yeah. so and it still is. I I'd, I'd looked after the 2016 election as to what uh, how that town voted in the in the Clinton Trump campaign. And it went 75 percent for Trump. And uh, so it's 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 Trump territory, but it's always been Republican. Um, and uh but it was a different kind of Republican Party when I was growing up there as a kid. Uh, uh, Minnesota, in its Republican Party roots, really came out of the kind of the progressive tradition of the Republican Party, kind of the the uh, Theodore Roosevelt wing, if you like, or faction of the Republican Party and not the conservative faction of the Republican Party. Uh, but it's changed, uh, as I think the Republican Party has uh Generally, it's um, you know, it, 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 in many ways, the opinions of of the people there. When I, you know, sit and talk with them about politics, um, you know, they they've they've changed their views and where they stand. They're you know, they're not as I wouldn't say as radical or reactionary as people in in some parts of the United States who are, identify with the Republican Party. But uh, but they've changed. They're, they've moved to the right and. Uh, and, um, you know, it's part of the part of the party divide. I think that's hurting us. Was Harold Stassen from Minnesota? Harold Stassen was from Minnesota. He was I uh, thought. he was called the boy governor. Actually, he was uh, the youngest at the time, the youngest elected individual to hold the governorship in the United States. And uh, that was shortly before World War Two. And then he volunteered for the service when he came out of the service. Then. He ran for the presidency uh, in the primaries, ran pretty credibly, actually, in 48, and uh, and then didn't have the good sense to know when to stop. Yeah, and uh, right. <laughs> he, kept, he kept running, and, you know, there's something sad about a politician that, that uh, you know, can't read the tea leaves in a way where you're not going to make it, so, you know, move on and do something else. But uh, he never lost that presidential ambition, even though. He never again came close to getting uh, his party's nomination. I think he was immortalized in a constant Milton Berle joke. Oh, there he goes again. Maybe I'm not. <laughs> I don't remember that, but, but it Maybe certainly would be appropriate, and it certainly would fit with Milton Berle. So. Right, right. Okay, so you, sir, were you a Republican? No, I'm, I have voted for Republicans, uh, so uh, I consider myself actually not very easy to classify. I uh, you know, I'm, I'm a progressive in the sense that, um, you know, I do think the government has a has a role to play in assisting people. But I'm, I'm a conservative when it comes to institutions. I, I believe in protecting these institutions that are fundamental and are in our in our norms. You know, democracies run on constitutions and laws, but they also run on norms um, and uh, norms like tolerance and forbearance. And forbearance is the idea that you know, if you're in power, um, you also respect those who are out of power. They have rights and interests uh, that need to be preserved. You don't you don't take power to the limits. Um, and um, uh, in in those respects, I I consider myself to be to be a conservative. Uh, I, I'm a libertarian. I think when it comes to issues of civil liberties, I mean, I do think that uh, 
you know, our rights are really important, and uh, government, uh, for the most part, should should stay out of our private lives. And then, I guess I'd, I'd probably call myself, on some dimensions, a populist as well. I mean, you know, I, I think what we call populism today is not what we understood populism traditionally to be. Uh, populism was where you listen carefully to the voice of the people, and that's where the inherent wisdom in society was embedded. And uh, in that sense, uh, you know, you could call that a small D Democrat or a populist. And I think that's where, where America really rests is on its people and, and not at the top, even though we focus so much attention on those who, who sit at the top of our, our political ladder. And yet a lot, Tom Patterson, who consider themselves conservatives, have identified part of their conservatism as being for a strong presidency. I take it when you say you want to defend our institutions, you're not only talking about, you know, Donald Trump and his aggressive remake of our constitutional norms, as you put it. But I think you're also talking about the Congress, are you? Well, I'm talking about both in that sense. You know, I do think that Congress, you know, it's Article One in the Constitution. I, you, you can call it the first branch. But, you know, this is where the framers of the Constitution, this is where most of their thought went uh, when they were crafting, you know, what how we would be governed. Uh, they really saw this as the as the center of, uh, of representative government because, in fact, that's where we're represented most fully, uh, states and districts and, and, and so on. And, uh, you know, I think Congress has, has lost a lot of its institutional authority, uh, in part uh, because of changes that have required some of the power that traditionally belonged to the Congress to be shifted to the uh, to the presidency. If you think, for example, about the regulation of the economy, if you're back in the in the 19th century, you could pass a law and that would pretty much take care of it. Or you could do something like Congress did with the um, uh, land grant colleges. You know, they gave the states a huge tracts of land to build uh, these great land grant colleges that that we have in this country. And that was an economic decision in many ways. Uh, it was a way to kind of boost the state economies and Congress could make that decision and that would be it. But then but then you think about environmental protection, which is an ongoing uh, activity uh, of government to make sure that firms are in compliance with environmental laws and the like. And uh, Congress can't do that. Uh, they can't do day-to-day -day oversight. That uh, is done by the executive. And so a lot of the authority that Congress once possessed has kind of got transferred to the executive and necessarily because of the changing nature of society. But I do worry about too much power being vested in the presidency, and I would fault both uh, uh, President Trump and uh, President Obama for their uh, really aggressive use of executive orders. Uh, you know, uh, President Obama did that around uh, uh, undocumented uh, immigrants. Uh, Trump has done it around quite a few things, you know, just pushing executive orders to the limits. Now, Legally, uh, executive orders have to work within the law, but they also be, ought to be governed by norms. We ought not to be have presidents who push the law to the limit time after time after time. And, uh, you know, I think uh, another example, I think, of, of where presidential power has, has gone too far is in war making. Uh, you know, as the Constitution was written, uh, Congress was to have a large hand in decisions of war um, and uh, – 
increasingly those decisions have been orchestrated by the White House. Uh, and many of the conflicts, of course, that we've been involved in uh, since the Second World War have been done without any congressional authorization, much less a congressional declaration of war. These are done uh, solely on the orders of one individual, the president of the United States. And that's a lot of power uh, to be put in, put in the hands of a single individual. And uh, many of our presidents have used that power judiciously, but uh, some have not. I mean, you look at the last 50, 60 years and, uh, you know, what are some of the things we'd like to, to redo? I think we'd like to redo the Vietnam War. I think we'd like to redo the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, uh, you know, and uh, you look at those wars and to a large degree, they're presidential wars. And uh, somehow we've got to find our way back to a constitutional balance where um, the voices of others weigh heavily in some of these critical uh, national decisions. We're talking to Thomas E. Patterson, and the new book is, Is the Republican Party Destroying Itself? Somebody wants to buy it, you go to Amazon, is that how it's done? Yes, that's okay. the best way to do it. So, Tom, is the Republican Party destroying itself? Okay, Tom, yes or no? Well, I think it's I think it is self-destructive and uh let me let me give you a couple of examples of the trouble I think that the Republican Party is in and how it got there. So, if you go back to the 1992 presidential election, this is the George W. Bush, Bill Clinton election. Asian Americans voted 2 to 1 Republican. In the 2018 midterms, they voted three to one Democratic. Now, how does a major political party lose a block of voters that it had two to one that go now three to one against it? And then you look at the profile of Asian Americans. They look very much like traditional Republicans. In terms of average family income, they have the highest in America, uh, higher than non-Hispanic whites. They have very high rates of education. Many of them are in small business activities. In fact, Asian Americans are twice as likely as other Americans to start a small business. So, you know, that to me sounds like someone who should be a Republican, and yet they're voting overwhelmingly Democratic. Now, now, why, why is that? Uh, is that something that the Democrats did? Uh, to lure them into the Democratic Party, or is it damage that the Republican Party did to itself? And I think the answer to that is plain. The Republican Party in the last 30 years or so has made it pretty darn clear, or at least many of its leaders, uh, that recent immigrants, that includes uh, Hispanics and Asian Americans particularly, are not fully welcome in this country. And, uh, you know, when you start to signal that with policy actions and words and and, uh, and the like, uh, you know, they get the message. Uh, they're not really wanted, at least within a party. Uh, and they've, they've moved more strongly to the Democratic Party. Another example uh, is young people. Uh, so you have to, if you go back to the 1930s, and um, that was when the Democrats uh, arrested control of government from the Republicans. The Republicans had pretty much dominated national politics uh, since the Civil War until you came to the Great Depression, and uh, that gave Democrats an, an, an opening. Um, but then if you look at the next three decades, uh, that opening uh, turned into kind of a period of Democratic dominance. Uh, where they seldom lost the presidency and seldom lost control of the Congress. Now, how did that happen? Well, it happened, actually, because in 1932, 1936, and 1940, three consecutive presidential elections, 
young people, young adults, voted overwhelmingly for one party, the Democratic Party. They voted two to one Democratic over Republican in those three consecutive presidential elections. And then they stayed loyal to the Democratic Party through most of their lifetimes. Uh, And that allowed the Democratic Party to dominate American politics for three decades. Now, only once since the 1930s have we seen that same pattern repeat itself. And it started in 2004. In 2004, 2008, 2012, 2016, young adults voted overwhelmingly for the Democratic Party, a little more than three to two. Um, And um, those voters now constitute everyone in this country who's 43 years of age and younger. Uh, That is the next generation, the powerful generation of voters. Where are the Republican voters' votes coming from? They're coming from aging Americans. More, uh, the one group that they do really well with is senior citizens. Well, which of those two groups would you rather have uh, as you look to the future? And I think the answer to that is obvious. That, And the Republican Party, through a number of policies, has really, I think, turned off young people. Uh, that began with the Iraq war, and there was some reaction against that from young adults. But uh, you know, young adults are, are, are more tolerant and um, in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, attitudes, for example, on same-sex marriage, uh, you know, young adults are, are much more accepting of that than older adults. Um, and yet you have the Republican Party taking pretty strong stands against it. Um, and you look at the environment, and young adults are concerned about climate change. And uh, in the Republican Party, you have a lot of climate deniers uh, and very little action on a policy front. Uh, you know, they're really not speaking uh, to the issues that concern young adults. Uh, and that's the future of either party in the American system is the, uh, you know, it, it's the people who are coming into the electorate. And if you start losing them election after election, there's a point at which their numbers are simply going to overwhelm you. Um, and there's a kind of a conventional wisdom is that, you know, you get more conservative as you get older and therefore these young adults of the last uh, four presidential elections are going to become a little more Republican over time, a little bit less Democratic. In fact, what we've seen is they've become more Democratic, more solidly Democratic than they were when they first voted, and they're voting at higher rates, so they're turning out more. So that's a really ominous sign for the Republican Party. Well, not only that, but now we're hearing from various polling places that some of the older people in this country are getting wary of Trump. Now, I don't know if that's getting wary of the Republicans as much as it is of a single individual. What do you think? Well, I've been looking at the polls recently, and uh, I think they're a little mixed, actually. I think I think it's a little hard to tell uh, kind of what's happening with, uh, with particular groups. Uh, I see kind of movement on the margin. We saw some movements on the margin in the 2018 midterms relative to the 2016 election so that uh, every group that had voted Republican in 2016 voted less Republican in 2018. Every group that had voted Democratic in 2016 voted more Democratic in 2018. But it's a little unclear as to whether that's the midterm effect, because usually the out party does better in midterms, as you know. Uh, I, I think there was a Trump effect there, and there will be a Trump effect in 2020. But what he's shown, uh, he's shown a remarkable capacity to hold on to the base. And in many ways, you know, if you think about what Trump has done within the Republican Party, uh, it's historic in many ways. So 
he kind of comes on the scene in 2015. He's the outsider coming into the party. Uh, and now he owns the party. The base is mainly loyal to Trump. It's more loyal to Trump than it is to the Republican Party. And we see that uh, whenever he speaks out against a Republican, you know, that individual's approval rating takes a real dive among Republicans. Uh, you know, John McCain, uh, Republican senator from Arizona, uh, you know, Trump and McCain did not get along and for pretty substantial reasons. And uh, at the time of his death, uh, John McCain was actually more popular among Democrats than he was among Republicans. So I'm just not so sure what we can read into the current polls around uh, the pandemic as to whether this is a short term uh, response uh, to the conditions of the moment, or whether it's something that will persist through November. I think that, I think that's an unknown. Well, Tom Patterson, you say, is the Republican Party destroying itself? The answer in the book is quite clearly yes. But the question for me is, how soon? And will Donald Trump win a second term? Well, I'm a political scientist, so uh, I'm not a political strategist, and I'm not a political activist. So, um, you know, what I'm talking about here is I'm really interested in our political parties. I, I, I am convinced that um, our parties work best when they're somewhere near the middle of the political spectrum. Um, that's the way our constitutional system was designed. It was designed to force interests to compromise uh, and that we don't do very well uh, when our parties are deeply divided. Um, and. Uh, and so I'm, I'm in, in the book, I'm looking at more long term than I am kind of to 2020. It's not a book about the 2020 election. Uh, when I do the demographic projections, for example, I look at the increase in the number of minorities that decline as a proportion of the population of the number of white Americans. You know, by by the 2030s, the Republican Party is going to be in deep trouble uh, if uh, if something doesn't disrupt uh, demographic change. Uh that doesn't say that, um, that Trump couldn't win in, in 2020. Some of the modeling that others have done suggests that he could even lose the popular vote by a larger margin than he did in 2016, maybe as much as by 5 million or 6 million this time, as opposed to 3 million last time, and still squeak through uh, on the Electoral College because of uh, where Republican uh, voters and Trump voters are located. Um, you know, it's, it's not a perfect mirror of the popular vote. So uh, 2020 to me is, at the moment, if I had to guess, if you take the polls seriously at the moment, it's a Democratic victory, but there's a long way between now and November, and uh, we're not even sure about uh, what the balloting will be like in November, and that could work either in Trump's favor or against Trump. And I think if, the, if somehow voters have trouble getting to the polls, I think that would work in his favor. So there, I just think there are a lot of unknowns heading into November. But of course, Tom Patterson, you were pretty sure that Trump will do everything in his power to make sure people don't get to the polls, especially in areas where, you know, a black or brown turnout might make a difference. Well, certainly Republicans have, have done that. And, um, you know, after the 2012 election, which uh, the Republicans lost to Barack Obama, uh, the Republican Party looked back and said, you know, since 1988, uh, we've only won the popular vote once. Uh, you have to remember that George W. Bush, when he was first elected, uh, also lost the popular vote and won through the Electoral College. Uh, 
and they, they, they did it, what they called an autopsy. And they said, we've, you know, we've got to reach out uh, to women, to minorities, to young people. You know, we've got to change the way that uh, that we're doing things. And uh, but they couldn't get uh all the Republicans to listen to that, and they certainly couldn't get right-wing media to listen to it. You know, I think, for example, uh, the conventional wisdom is that right-wing media are a really powerful part of the Republican Party, and uh, you can make that argument, and, and there certainly is a good case to be made for why, in certain respects, it is a powerful part of the party. But it also handicaps the party, because what it's done is it's really locked the Republican Party into the right uh, and away from the middle. Any Republican lawmaker who indicates that they would like to compromise to go more toward the moderate side is going to get attacked by a wing, and that inhibits uh, any kind of that behavior. Uh, if you look at the Republican Party today and you look at Congress, uh, where are the moderates, you know, and uh, – well, they talk about three or four or five maybe Republican moderates in Congress. Well, they're actually not very moderate at all. If you look at Susan Collins, who's usually held up as the prototypical moderate Republican in the Congress of the United States, she votes with her Republican colleagues over 90 percent of the time and with Donald Trump's position about 90 percent of the time. Uh, that's not a moderate. Uh, the Republican Party is pretty well anchored on the right, and it's moved away from the center. And in a two-party system, over time, um, the way you win elections is appealing to those independents, more moderate voters in the center. They hold the balance of power, not in every election, but over time in most elections. And the Republican Party, I think, is pretty much stuck on the right, held there by some of the big donors, held there by right-wing media, held there by its southern leadership. If you look at the Republican Party today, um, if you go back to uh, 1960, there was nary a Republican in, or a Southerner in the Republican leadership. Uh, today, most of the congressional leaders, uh, either the congressional party leaders or the committee leaders of the Republican Party are Southerners. And uh, the Republican Party has become very much a party of Southern values. And, uh, you know, and that is more uh, conservative and more right-wing uh, than the rest of America. And I think it's a big handicap for the party in the long run. Tom Patterson, do you have a copy of the book in front of you as we speak from distance? I do not. Okay, then I'll read it. Today's Republican Party is confronting five traps of its own making. They vary in their lethality, but together could cripple the party for a generation or more. One trap is the steady movement to the right, which has distanced the party from the moderate voters who hold the balance of power in a two-party system. A second trap is a demographic change. Younger adults and minorities vote heavily Democratic, and their numbers increase with every passing election. The older white voters, upon whom the GOP depend, are shrinking in number. While two decades based on demographic change alone, the GOP faces the prospect of being a second-rate party. Uh, right-wing media are the Republicans' third trap, a powerful force within the party. They have the GOP policy positions and versions of reality that are blunting its ability to govern and to attract new voters. A fourth trap is the large tax cuts that the GOP has three times given the wealthy. The rich have reaped a windfall, but at a high cost to the GOP. It has soiled the image of the party of the middle class and created a split between the working class and the marketplace voters. The fifth trap is the GOP's disregard for democratic norms and institutions, including its effort throughout 
voter ID laws to suppress the vote of minorities and lower income Americans. In the process, it has made lasting enemies and created instruments of power that can be used against it. Okay, so that pretty well sums it up. You've talked about some of that, you know, as we have gone along. Nevertheless, let's take them one by one, if we can. The steady movement to the right, which has distanced the party from moderate voters. Now, those moderate voters, what we call the purples on WAMC, they are not necessarily inclined to support Democrats, right? No, that's right. I think the Democratic Party uh, also has its problems. Well, let's, let's go back four months and take a look at how you would think about where the parties were um, judged against historical standards. So you have a booming economy, and, um, and a booming economy is, has always been good for the um, in-party. It's really hard to pinpoint uh, a president of the United States who has not been reelected when the economy has been strong on his watch. Uh, You lose when the economy is weak. Uh, Then you look at the polls uh, three or four months ago, and the Republican president, Donald Trump, was trailing uh, in the presidential heat polls. Now, that's a reversal of historical precedent. That tells you something's going on here uh, that's, that's, that's really troubling uh, to the party. And uh, I think, to be honest with you, I think uh, Donald Trump has been uh, the best thing in, politically that's happened to the Democratic Party because he's kept him in the game. Um, Actually, if you go back to 2016, uh, the pollsters actually predicted, given all the conditions uh, that affected the 2016 election, that Republicans ought to win that election by 4 or 5 percent. Um, and they actually lost the popular vote, um, you know, by a couple of percent. Uh, Donald Trump was actually a very weak nominee, not a strong nominee. Um, and he's dragging down the party at the moment. Uh, the problem for the Republican Party is he owns it. Uh, so he's he's the only game they have, and they actually like him. So uh, they're not unhappy with that game, but it's really a drag. It's keeping the, the Democrats in in the, in the game, and I I think the Democrats have got to figure out, um, or they're going to have similar kinds of problems. Uh, they've got to figure out how to strengthen their message to the American people. Uh, you know, there were a lot of disgruntled Republicans in 2016 who were troubled by. Um, the allegations around Donald Trump's uh, affairs and the like, but the Democratic Party was a step too far. And uh, so I think the Democrats also need to think about how do they appeal to the people in the in the middle. You know, that's, uh, again, that's where our constitutional system was designed to be run. If we look at all the deadlock that we've suffered uh, in Washington over the last decade, it's it's been because of the breakdown of the middle, the inability of Republican and Democratic lawmakers to find the center, and uh, and and mostly I think that's been a, because of the Republican Party's unwillingness to move at all toward the center. But I think the Democrats too have contributed to that problem. So I think uh, I think you're quite right. I mean, um, the inability of Republicans to appeal strongly to moderates doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to. While you know, warmly embrace the Democrats because they have some reservations there as well. Well, Tom Patterson, let's face it, Joe Biden is not known as a radical. <laughs> and right now, you know, he has to make up his mind whether he wants a radical-ish vice presidential candidate or he wants somebody, Amy Klobuchar, for example, sort of from the middle. But it seems to me that Biden fits exactly what you're saying 
as the middle of the party, as opposed to a leftist candidate. And the American voter certainly ratified that in the primaries. Am I wrong? No, no, I think that's right. And and certainly Biden, I think, is exactly as you define him. I mean, I do think he is, uh, by temperament, a moderate. Uh, He's someone who, uh, during his career in the Senate, uh, worked well across party lines. I I do think he fits fits my definition of the type of politician uh, that the Constitution was designed uh, to to produce and uh, and once in office could produce the kind of policies that uh, would respect the rights and interests of a broad spectrum of Americans, not just one side or the other. Um, but you know, uh, Biden is is only part of the Democratic Party, and uh, I think the Democratic Party since the 1960s has had a lot of trouble kind of figuring out what it's all about. Um, mm-hmm. You know, up until the Great Society, it was the party that uh, of the future. Uh, it had an image of a different America, one that uh, included greater economic security for the average American. And uh, the New Deal programs uh, uh, delivered on that promise. The Great Society programs of Lyndon Johnson delivered on that promise. Uh, once that was done, though, uh, in many ways, the Democratic Party uh, then became kind of what I would call kind of a management party, a managerial party. Uh, trying to protect what it had created, uh, living for today, not uh, giving people a vision of tomorrow. And, you know, you go from the 1960s to today, and uh, what big piece, of any, uh, was added to the economic safety net uh, uh, that was so much associated with the Democratic Party? Well, there's one piece of legislation in roughly 50 years, and that's the Affordable Care Act of 2010. So, you know, I think the Democratic Party has not projected a strong image of what it stands for, who it represents. I think it's got caught up in identity politics. And, you know, the problem with identity politics, whether played by Republicans or Democrats, is that it's divisive. You embrace one group as it stands against another group, and you're going to alienate the other group. That's the Republicans' problem with uh, with immigrants and with minorities. Uh, you know, you can only embrace white America to some level before people who aren't part of white America kind of get the idea they're they're not part of your embrace. So I think the Democrats have done some of that too over the last 30 or 40 years. So, you know, I think the Democrats have have their own problems, but they're different in kind. And that's the book that I'm working on now. And the one that's out there at the moment is the Republican Party book. Okay. So a second trap you write is demographic change. Younger adults and minorities vote heavily Democratic, and their numbers increase with each passing election. Well, I've always told my students about that day that I came home from the sixth grade and told my mother that I was going to vote like the rest of the class for General of the Army, Dwight Eisenhower, (laughs) and not Bradley Stevenson. And my mother looked at me and she said, no, dear, we're Democrats. And I always define that as what political socialization is really what it's all about, what your mother tells you you are. You know, you're Jewish, you're Catholic, whatever. So the question then is to you, has that pattern changed where the older people can tell the younger people what they are? Well, I I think it has changed to a degree. Um, You know, the stability of there's still a stability of of party loyalties. Uh, You know, most Americans still identify with the party of their parents. But, you know, you look at different parts of the country and you see really quite different patterns, right, than we might have seen uh, a generation or two ago. Uh, the one solid South, uh, you know, was Democratic, and uh, now it's heavily Republican, um, and uh, that meant a lot of Democrats changed their party loyalties. Uh, 
and a lot of young people uh, have taken on uh, loyalties different than their parents. Uh, I think the most interesting group in terms of uh, in terms of just kind of the shaping of their party loyalty during adulthood are uh, members of the LGBT community. Um, uh, it's uh, it's a very heavily democratic group, uh, and it's also the case that when people come out, uh, their politics often change. Uh, and uh, in almost every case, whether they grew up in a Republican or a Democratic household, they become Democrats. And uh, they now vote about four to one uh, Democratic, uh, very high turnout group, uh, high participation in terms of contributing funds and time. Uh, you know, they've become a real asset for the for the Democratic Party. And again, there, if you look at uh, the LGBT community, uh, you know, on average, uh, uh, you know, there's certainly uh, in terms of income, education, all those other factors, uh, you know, they ought to be in play for the Republican Party. Now, why aren't they? Uh, that's part of the Republican Party's movement to the right and the turning away from people who don't fit that kind of conservative uh, uh, positioning uh, that they have taken, in, in large part to appeal to white evangelical Christians, uh, which have been a mainstay of the party. Uh, you know, 40% of the Republican votes comes from white evangelicals, but it's also part of their demographic problem. Uh, they were a quarter of the population uh, uh, in the 1990s. They're now down to about a sixth of the population and shrinking by the year. Uh, mainline Protestants, Catholics, uh, those numbers are also going down. They tend to be Republican voters. Uh, you know, you look at every demographic group uh, that aligns with the Republican Party, and it's shrinking in number. Uh, that's a real warning sign for any political party. But, you know, some of the things that have turned uh, particular groups uh, from the Republican Party uh, – are around voter suppression, you know, and there's some really egregious examples of it. I, one of the most recent uh, was in North Dakota, which is um, out in my home country, Minnesota, borders on the Dakotas, where North Dakota had a one, at one time had a very progressive political tradition, and uh, but you have the Republican legislature in 1917, uh, 2017, they passed a law that. You to, in order to register to vote, uh, you have to have a numbered street address. Um, now, that would seem pretty simple, that most every American or all Americans have a numbered street address. Well, actually, there's a group in North Dakota that doesn't. Uh, Native Americans living on tribal lands, many of the roadways don't have names and numbers. And, uh, and it was a way of disenfranchising Native Americans in that state who happened to vote heavily Democratic. And we've seen that in state after state after state, where they've targeted minorities through various laws, purging of registration rules, strict uh, government ID laws. If you look at, you know, if you have to have a government-issued ID, photo ID, to register, well, the question is, who doesn't have a driver's license or a passport? Well, minorities primarily, poor uh, people with low income primarily, much higher rates of not having uh, one of those forms of, uh, and they tend to vote very heavily Democratic. This has been done by Republican legislatures. As one of the Republican strategists said, well, we talk about it as voter fraud, but there's so little voter fraud, that's not why we do it. The reason we do it is because it works for us, uh, keeps voters away from the polls who would vote for the other party. Now, what kind of party 
uh, engages in that and expects to have a long-time future with uh, the groups that it's targeting. Uh, one thing about being oppressed uh, is it lengthens your memory. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if people step on you, uh, you don't forget. And uh, in politics, when that happens, uh, you really make lifetime voters for the other party out of the people uh, that you're doing this to. So I think the Republican Party is going to have a really difficult time as much as some in the party would like to reach out to minorities, I think they're going to have a really hard, hard time being taken seriously when they when they make those overtures. So Thomas E. Patterson, professor at Harvard, has written this book, Is the Republican Party Destroying Itself?, of which he has given us an overwhelming yes. So then right-wing media are the Republicans' third trap. Now, a lot of people, Tom, watch Fox News. They watch it all the time. And the last time I looked, it was the leader among the cable stations for viewers. How powerful is Fox? Oh, it's very powerful within the Republican Party. There's no question about it. And you're quite right. Um, it has the largest uh, cable viewership um, and the most loyal. Uh, very, And it's very heavily Republican. Um, and... Uh, and uh, it does help in terms of energizing the base, keeping the base loyal. Um, and uh, and so th that's a benefit to the party. Um, but I think it also carries with it some problems. Um, one of them I've already mentioned, um, right-wing media are not tolerant of moderates within the Republican Party. And uh, if you look at some of the re moderates that have lost primary elections, um, moderate lawmakers who have lost primary elections or simply gave up the ghost and said, I'm not going to run again because I'm going to face a right-wing challenger. Uh, in almost every case, they were targeted by right-wing media. And, uh, you know, the, probably the best case of that is Eric Cantor, who was second in line to become Speaker of the House of Representatives, a very prominent Republican, well-respected within Republican circles. Um, he said he'd be open to compromising on the immigration issue. Uh, well, the right-wing media wasn't having it, and uh, they went after him, and he got beat by an unknown uh, uh, who happened to be a member of the Tea Party and uh, was very rigid in his positioning on immigration. So I, I think one of the things that it does, it, it, it anchors it to the right and away from the center, and it makes it very hard for those moderate voices within the Republican Party to reach to the center. And, uh, you know, that was pretty evident, I think, in the 2018 uh, midterm elections when, uh, you know, moderate voters uh, just kind of turned against many of these uh, right-wing nominees of the Republican Party, uh, almost all backed by, by right-wing media. And, uh, and um, so that's one of the problems, I think, that right-wing media create for the party. Um, the second is that they demonize these immigrants uh, and minorities, uh, and uh, you know they're part of the reason why uh, Republican rhetoric is so harsh in some circles toward these groups. And so, in some ways, they put a permanent barrier between the Republican Party's efforts to reach out to these groups and those groups. They make it harder, I think, for the Republican Party to attract new voters. And then the third reason is. Uh, there's a lot of uh, disinformation, uh, a lot of half-truths and the like that flow through right-wing media. Um, the creation of uh, what uh, uh, some of the tr 
Trump White House have called alternative realities. Well, uh, the problem with alternative realities is once you create them, you got to live with them, um, and it, it can make it pretty hard to govern. So, uh, so you you know you you create these artificial realities about climate change and other things and so on and so forth. You get into office, uh, you can't say, well, we were we were just kind of kidding you. Uh, you have to govern like those are the real situation, and uh, but you can't govern in that way. Uh, there, there's no policy uh, response that can be had, and if you look at uh, the Republicans over the last decade, they've had a share of power uh, and for two years, full power in terms of control of the House, Senate and presidency. Uh, and what have they done? They have one major piece of legislation to their credit in 10 years. That's the 2017 tax cuts, uh, tax cut and jobs bill uh, and four government shutdowns uh, in that same period. That's one lousy uh, governing record. And to some degree, it's been the kind of thing that's been forced on them by right wing radio. It was urging them to shut down the government, pushing for these things and so on, making it very hard for the Republicans and Congress to compromise, to come to the center, to get things done that would be good for America. And uh, and even the pandemic is an interesting example of what happens when you create false realities. So early on, at least, um, you know, right wing media was comparing uh, the coronavirus to the seasonal flu. Uh, no more deadly than the seasonal flu. Go for it, folks. Uh, you know, and uh, Sean Hannity on Fox was saying this is a hoax invented by the Democrats uh, to discredit Donald Trump. Uh, really interesting study that came out recently by four prominent economists that uh, uh, broke down the country by counties where uh, there's heavy listenership of Sean Hannity and where there's not. And in those counties where people do listen to Hannity, uh, presumably take him at his word, uh, there was a higher rate uh, of uh, of uh, COVID-19 cases and a higher uh, per capita death rate. Uh, so to some degree, when you create these alternative realities, uh, you also create the possibility of diluting the people who accept them and uh, and real harm is done. So. I think there are ways in which uh, you can say, yeah, uh, it's a mixed blessing. Yeah, they're a very powerful force, right-wing media within the Republican Party, but there's also some ways that they handicap and cripple the party, and that was the point of that particular chapter and argument. I want to deviate from where we've been just for a moment and then come back to it and ask you this question. I was asking Linda Ellerby, what if you were a Republican senator? You've alluded to this issue, and you knew— that Trump was trouble, real trouble, but that you couldn't speak out because 90% of the Republican rank and file are for Trump, you would lose your office. What would you do? And she gave me an answer, which is, I like to think of what I would do. So I'm sort of wondering whether this isn't a death trap for Republican office holders who have to adhere to Trump. Otherwise, as you suggest, he'll come after them. And if they don't, they have to live with their consciences. There's a question well, there somewhere. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it is an interesting question. It's kind of the classic profile and courage question as to whether you're going to give up your career to take a stand. And uh, the answer is not many people do that. And, you know, most of the people who hold a seat in the House or in the Senate, uh, they're career politicians. Uh, they've worked most of their adult life to get there. Uh, you know, that's that's their goal. 
this is the highest office they're going to be able to achieve. Uh, they're where they want to be. And uh, and if you're a Republican, to speak out against Donald Trump, to talk about the need to work with Democrats on issues like climate change, immigration, and many of these other pressing national issues, uh, that's almost a death sentence. Uh, and we have living examples of people whose political careers have been destroyed uh, because they did that. Uh, Jeff Flake uh, from Arizona, the senator from Arizona, is a good example. Uh, you know, if he'd have told the line, if he'd have kept his mouth quiet, uh, you know, he, he, he was a, he's a pretty good politician, actually, and uh, he would have done just fine and could still be a Republican senator. Uh, but uh, uh, he came out, uh, spoke out against Trump, and uh and those examples are not lost uh, any more than the Eric Cantor example when he spoke out for the need for getting together with Democrats and, and resolving uh, the immigration uh, issue uh, You know, when he lost. Uh, most people who are Republicans in Congress keep their heads down uh, if they disagree with the president. And uh, it's not only the president, uh, as I indicated. Uh, the president and right-wing media are pretty much in lockstep uh, uh, in terms of where they stand on issues and uh, what they think of uh, of Republicans who make any move toward the center. Okay, now this is very interesting, Tom Patterson. I want to remind people that you wrote this book, Is the Republican Party Destroying Itself? And I'm wondering about Mitch McConnell. Now, Mitch McConnell is running dead even in the polls with an opponent. How do you explain that? Well, Mitch McConnell is, is a cat with nine lives. I think when the votes are counted in early November that Mitch McConnell will be back in the Senate. I agree. The polls were pretty close uh, in 2014 when he last ran for the Senate uh, at this point in the campaign, and he won going away. And, you know, I think Mitch McConnell is probably one of the most astute politicians um, since Lyndon Johnson. Um, I would distinguish, though, between the two of them. Uh, Johnson was a very astute politician, but he used politics to get things done, uh, to achieve policy goals and the like. Um, I think Mitch McConnell uh, is primarily concerned with keeping Republicans in power and less concerned about kind of what how Republicans govern, whether they govern well and the like, uh, as long as they hold on to power. I think that's been uh, Mitch McConnell's playbook, um, and it's the same playbook that he's used in his personal career in Kentucky, uh, doing what it takes uh, you know, to get reelected time and again, uh, and as Senate Majority Leader doing everything he can uh, to help other Republicans get elected so that they keep control of the Senate. Uh, so, you know, he's a power broker in a really uh, stark way and around winning. Uh, Lyndon Johnson was an interesting power broker. He was about winning, of course, uh, but he was also about how do I how do I win to get things done? I, I think those are two very different kinds of leadership styles. And, and maybe they're just emblematic of, of, of a different time when uh, – Americans actually, uh, in the time of Johnson, were looking for government to do things, to advance the society. And now we're kind of mixed in terms of what direction we'd like to take. And therefore, there's kind of less consensus about you know what that direction should be. That makes it hard for both parties. 
Are you at all troubled by the fact that his wife is in the president's cabinet? Doesn't this destroy this separation of powers and the Constitution? I would be very concerned if his wife was the president of the United States. That would that would trouble me. Um, you know, you know, you know, she doesn't hold one of the top cabinet positions, um, and um, you know, the cabinet's the cabinet, and. Uh, Administers an executive agency, and yeah, there's a potential conflict of interest there. But you know, Bob Dole, Livy Dole. I mean, these. You know, I think we can make too much of, uh, of those kinds of things. Uh, you know, the. Um, you know, I, I don't think the Senate Majority Leader. Let's say that his wife wasn't the head of that particular agency. I don't think the Senate Majority Leader thinks much about that agency. Period, and probably wouldn't think very much differently about it if she wasn't heading it. A fourth trap you write is the large tax cuts that the GOP has given three times to the wealthy. What confuses me is how many people who aren't wealthy have supported this president and his tax cuts based on the fiction that somehow they're making out like bandits themselves. This is a sort of what Marx might have called a false consciousness, isn't it? Well, maybe. Uh, what's interesting to me and what that chapter does is it, <clears throat> is it really talks about the different responses uh, uh, that Americans had to the to the three big Republican tax cuts for the wealthy. The first being the Reagan tax cut, then the George W. Bush tax cut of the early 2000s, and then the Trump tax cut of 2017. Um, the first two, Reagan's was quite popular. Uh, Bush's was narrowly popular. Uh, Trump's was unpopular. Um, and um, and what was interesting is. Um, You'd expect Republicans to be pretty well united around anything in that Republicans would do in the tax area. Uh, well, they weren't in the case of the 2017 um, tax bill. That actually divided what I call marketplace Republicans. These are the traditional economic conservatives that have been, you know, part of the Republican Party since 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 the Civil War versus the white working class Republicans. Uh, which came over from the Democratic Party uh, after the 1960s and partly stimulated by the race issue. Um, and uh, now they're a very large part, a substantial part of the Republican Party, the white working class. This is not the poorest of whites. These are the kind of the lower middle is where the Republicans have really cut into the Democratic Party. Um, and they were quite unhappy with those tax cuts because they went to the wealthy. Uh, and there's been a split in Republican ranks. Uh, and it didn't start with that tax cut bill. It actually started in the last year of the George W. Bush presidency when Bush bailed out the banks but didn't bail out homeowners uh, in the aftermath of the steep economic downturn of 2007-2008. That really angered uh uh, white working class Republicans. And in fact, that's what fueled, as well as uh, the stimulus package that the Democrats passed and the, uh, Obama's efforts to get Affordable Care Act through Congress, that's really what fueled the Tea Party. Uh, that was the first sign of a real split in the Republican Party between its marketplace conservatives and its white working class followers. And, uh, and that still is simmering. Um, and if you look at the 2016 uh, Republican race, um, the marketplace conservatives were pretty solidly behind Jeb Bush. White working class Republicans were pretty solidly behind Democrat, uh, Donald Trump. And that wasn't even a contest. Uh, uh, that the strongest 
voting bloc now within the Republican Party are, is, is its white working class voters. What a remarkable turnaround that is. Uh, you know, this was the heart of the New Deal coalition, the Democratic coalition that governed from the 1930s through the 19— but it's an uneasy fit uh, with uh, traditional Republican economic philosophy, which really— works to the advantage of business and not of labor. And uh, and the one thing that's held them in the Republican Party is the politics of resentment that people like Trump um, have really played so well. Uh, you know, fear of immigrants, uh, concern about minorities kind of getting uh, ahead of them in line uh, with a little push from the Democrats and the like. Republicans have played that card pretty well. But there is this split. Um, and the other thing that the Trump tax cut did particularly, it soiled the Republicans' party longstanding image as the party of the middle class. Uh, that was a Trump card, uh, no pun intended there, for the Republican Party for decades. Uh, they were the party of the middle class. Uh, the polls today, when you ask about the Republican Party, people say, except for Republicans, people say, oh, they're the party of the rich. They're not the party of the middle class. That in American politics is not where a party wants to be positioned. And I think the Republicans have set themselves up for a pretty big fall if the Democrats take control of the presidency, Congress, and the Senate. Um, and they put on the table a middle tax, middle class tax cut that's going to be paid for by an increase in the taxes on the wealthy. That's a no-win situation for Republican lawmakers. If they vote against that bill, if they vote against the Democratic bill, they're voting against the middle class. If they vote for it, they're voting against their donor class. Uh, and uh, that's not a situation any politician is, would like to find themselves in. But, boy, they back themselves into that corner. It's going to happen, whether it will happen after the 2020 election. But there's a point at which that middle class tax cut put on the table by Democrats is going to happen and Republican lawmakers are not going to be able to find cover. They're either going to anger the middle class or they're going to anger their business class followers. So it's another trap, I think, that the Republican Party has set for itself. Well, Tom Patterson, we are very grateful for the amount of time you've spent with us today. We've been in conversation with author and Harvard professor Dr. Thomas Patterson about his book, Is the Republican Party Destroying Itself? Professor Patterson, again, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate the time. Ellen, it's always a pleasure, and stay safe. You too. You've been listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series or to order a physical copy, call one 800 3239262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store.